Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday the 13th, 2012. Believe it or not, I think I'm suffering from frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Ay, 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 the code orange. <laughs> One of my listeners on my Facebook wall calls it the code vomit revival, and it's so bad. Ah! Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of just crazy things being said. It's all so unnecessary. It's not like we don't have a Bible or something. It's not like God didn't, you know, reveal a few things about himself. But then again, what do I know? I just, you know, I'm just an old curmudgeon. I'm just one of those old school Christians. And, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not in on the latest hip movement of the, uh, of what God is up to, apparently. But I got to tell you, there's just no way that God the Holy Spirit has had anything to do with night one or night two of the Code Orange revival. And I, 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 I. Okay, so that being said, I have hope. I, I'm hoping that Friday the 13th is a good night there at the Code Orange revival out there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Why? Because somebody who has shown that he understands the biblical gospel, is capable of preaching the biblical gospel, is going to be headlining tonight, and that's Matt Chandler. So my prayer for Matt Chandler is please, please, please preach the biblical gospel, please, please. I mean, one night out of 12 is better than none, right? Because I'm looking down the pipe at what's coming up at the uh, Code Orange Revival and have like zero hope that the biblical gospel will again be preached anytime from here until the end of the Code Orange Revival. So, yeah, it's it's just oh man. So <laughs> All right, <laughs> you just I just I I'm just in one of those funks where it's like could it get any worse? Um could it? Yeah, well the answer is yeah, actually it can cuz they still got TD Jakes coming. And uh so it's just well anyway. 
I'm venting at the moment. So uh, so I fully expect that tonight, Friday the 13th, 2012, that uh, we will hear the biblical gospel preached by Matt Chandler. I don't think he's going to succumb to any pressure or this idea of media spotlight and, or stuff like that. Uh, no, I, I think he's really actually going to, uh, to bring it. So uh, I'm looking forward, looking forward to uh, uh, hearing Matt Chandler. So anyway... Um, so, but you know, since we were broadcasting at the same time, they are. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We kind of email uh, this viral video, Code Orange update, <laughs> Jensen Franklin. Good night. Talk about adventures in mythology, and uh, and okay. So here's what we're gonna do. Yeah. So we're gonna do four things today. I got part of an email that I'm going to read. I don't know, uh, I, you know, a guy by the name Dan emailed me. I'm going to read part of this email and just kind of a- a- answer a question. Uh, there's a viral video that's uh, making the round entitled, uh, you know, uh, it's about hating religion but loving Jesus. It's called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And um, I, you know, people have asked me to weigh in. I said I would, so I'm going to weigh in today on this. Um just kind of, you know, let you know up front. Uh, there's some good things about this uh, viral video, and then there's some confusion uh, in the viral video, a uh, confusion of law and gospel. Then we're going to switch gears, and uh, I'm going to be doing a mini review of, of the message. Uh, oh, man, that Jensen Franklin delivered last night at the Code Orange Revival, and it's... I mean, seriously. I mean, it's every bit as mythological as anything you would hear from a Roman Catholic. And you're going, really? Yeah, you know, because, again, a lot of people rightly point out and criticize Roman Catholicism because it's just chock full of mythology. Mythology is like prayer to the saints, prayer to the perpetual Virgin Mary, uh, prayer to uh, Mary, our co-redemptrix, all kinds of just bizarre stuff. You know, the third eagle of the apocalypse now, praying the rosary. You know, all that kind of stuff. That's all mythology. Okay. You know, the the treasury of merit, uh, if you've heard of that, um, I mean, that's all mythology. It's not theology. It's mythology. Well, Jensen Franklin was spinning mythology left and right last night. That's every bit as wrong and and bizarre as anything you you would hear in Roman Catholicism. And uh, that's not an overstatement. You're going to hear it for yourself. So. And then we're, you know, it's not going to be a full-blown review. I'm going to take time to you know, to look at about 15 minutes of what Jensen Franklin delivered, and you'll get the gist of it. And uh, and then we'll switch gears. I need to unwind. I, so we're going to uh, we're going to be listening to a a a, a twin spin a, a twin spin uh, a good two good sermons from someone who we've never featured before here, and uh, that's uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman uh, from uh, uh, from Murdoch, Nebraska. He uh, he's with Higher Things and uh, just a great guy. I know Brent. And uh, and I've recently added uh, his he does a radio show there in Nebraska entitled Table Talk. And I've added that that to the uh, rotation here at Pirate Christian Radio. So now we've got two programs named Table Talk. We've got the uh, Table Talk radio of of Evan Gagline and uh, Brian Wolfmuller that uh, airs on Tuesdays. 
And now on Thursdays, we've got the Table Talk uh, uh, Murdoch, Nebraska edition. That uh, we're, Anyway, but I'm going to be playing two good sermons from Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He does a really good job of preaching the law in such a way to just nail you to the wall. So, And, and then he always brings the gospel and, and does a fantastic job. So we're going to be – we're doing a – Brent Kuhlman twin spin today in hour number two. So, in fact, we got to just dive into it. I got so much ground to cover. I don't have a lot of time to to jabber about anything else. So, that being the case, let's dive into the program proper, and that requires me to do this. All right, yeah, that's our email music. I got an email from a guy by the name of Dan, and I do not know where Dan lives. All right, Dan wrote me an email and he wants to take issue with uh, something I said on well, the, kind of the whole premise of January 10th. Okay, writing about the Electio Divina hearing, from the voice, hearing the Voice of God episode of Fighting for the Faith, Dan writes, and I don't know where he's from, he says, I just listened to your podcast posted on January 10th. I definitely agree that Lectio Divina and hearing God's voice can be misconstrued and definitely used by Satan to lead God's followers astray. However, I still haven't heard a solid argument that God doesn't speak outside of the words in the Bible other than the bad experiences that you've referred to. But, but I'm going to just kind of pause right there for a second. Um, let's make something perfectly clear. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God cannot speak outside of the words of the Bible. It doesn't say that, Okay. I, I would uh, point you to passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, that uh, that make it clear that we are to test everything and hold to that which is good. And so the question is, what are we tested against? What are we testing against? The answer, God's word. Okay. So here's the idea. Okay. Let's it, it, in you know in in the world where you know God is God and He can do what He wants to do. We say, okay, God being sovereign, God being omnipotent, God being powerful, God may want to communicate something to us. No problem. Got that. Okay. So the question comes in is how is the church, to, what is their posture supposed to be towards people and teachers who claim to be receiving direct words from God? Now, number one, when it comes to the Lectio Divina, the lecti- the, those who created it claim that if you walk those steps, you walk those le- you know the steps in the ladder, that you will automatically hear God's voice and experience God. But nowhere does the Bible teach this. Okay, so that practice num- is flat out non-biblical, and the promises that it makes cannot be substantiated from Scripture. Therefore, it must be thrown out as a practice contrary to the word of God. God nowhere has made a promise that if you do steps X, Y, and Z, and and number one and three B, that he will then speak to you and, uh, and you'll have an experience of God. If, you know, if, if the Bible taught that, we'd all be doing it. Bible doesn't teach it. Lectio Divina is a foreign concept. It is not a biblical practice. It's not taught in scripture and the promises associated with it are not are not biblical. It has got to go. Now, the other piece of it is is this this idea that somebody might hear 
from God. Now, Scripture tells us to not despise prophecy, but to test it. Okay, So that being the case, the church then must always be on guard. Okay, So the idea is this. Okay, Since the Bible so clearly warns us, especially like Jude verse 8, talking about, you know, if you read, I mean, read that one chapter long epistle by the half-brother of Jesus. It's called Jude. Okay, when you read it, he says, you know, I wanted to write about the gospel, but I got to warn you to, you know, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because bad guys, false teachers have crept into the body of Christ, right? And so Jude tells us that the false prophets, the false teachers that he's warning the church about would rely on their dreams, okay? That's, that's, a, that's one of the marks of a false teacher. Now, that's not to say that somebody who is truly orthodox, who truly confesses, preaches, and teaches the historic Christian faith cannot hear from God. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But here's the posture that the church must take biblically in order to rightly uh, address the issue of these so-called dreams, visions, and direct communication from God, okay? Think of it this way. Anybody who claims to hear from God directly must be quarantined. That's the posture that the church must take. And you're going, quarantined? Yeah, yeah. Think of it this way, okay? Um, I mean, if if I told, you know, if, if, let's say that you were traveling abroad, okay, and um, and let's say that um, that the the region of the world that you had traveled to had recently had an outbreak of the Ebola virus, okay, and you were in like the area where the Ebola virus had outbroken, okay, guarantee you right off the bat, okay, that you would be quarantined and not allowed to have access to the general population until a series of tests had been run on you medically to ensure that you were not a carrier of the Ebola virus and that you because I mean that thing kills quickly and and you know and make sure that you've got a clean bill of health before we put you into the general population. So the the, the really because false teachers are ones who rely on their dreams, see Jude verse eight, we must put every single teacher who claims to be receiving direct revelation from God into quarantine first and foremost, and then run an extensive, and I mean microscopic examination of their background, their theology, what it is they believe, teach, and confess, and scrutinize everything that they've written and taught to make sure that it passes biblical muster. Why? Because the Bible makes it so clear that false teachers are the ones who are claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God. So in order to it, it, that, so that's what we got to do. So for instance, okay, um let me give you an example of a very popular popular uh teacher in the Christian church who claims that she's getting direct revelation from God. Here's Beth Moore. What I want to say to you, we could live our whole believing lives through and never make it to our promised land. And you know what? We get to heaven and go, you were not faithful to me. Uh-oh, we got problems already. We, we, we won't get to our promised land. Notice, that's a twisting of God's word via allegory. You, you didn't do what you 
said you were going to do. Child, I was holding every single bit of that for you. But I will insist that you cooperate with me. What it says over and over in this particular chapter, the number one hindrance to our calling becoming a reality is unbelief. Boy, this is the heart of our study. This is the heart of our study. Listen carefully. What God began to say to me about five years ago, and I'm telling you, it sent me on such a trek with him that my head is still whirling over it. Mm, she's claiming direct revelation from God. He began to say to me, I'm going to tell you something right now, Beth. And boy, you write this one down. And notice she's preaching it and exegeting it as if it's, you know, biblical. And you say it as often as I give you utterance to say it. My bride is paralyzed by unbelief. My bride is paralyzed by unbelief. And he said, starting with you. Amen. Because we can do a lot of finger pointing around, around here about why revival's not happening here and there. Let me tell you something. Revival will always happen with faith. By faith, we'll drop on our knees, humble ourselves, and cry out to God. But I'm telling you, I am convinced with everything in my heart that one reason why we see so little is because we believe for so little. Yeah, what I want to yeah and, she, and all of that is based upon supposedly direct revelation she received from God. So here's the deal. If the church was being biblical, okay, number one, uh, since every teacher is to be tested against the clear teaching of the Word of God, the, that means that the, the surefire way of protecting the church is for everybody in the church to not to be biblically literate, skilled, and, and understand the Bible in such a way that when a false teacher arises, they are immediately isolated, put out, rebuked, and, and corrected, and, and they're gone, right? So the idea is then is that anybody who comes like a Beth Moore who claims to be receiving direct revelation from God, you must immediately put them into quarantine, immediately because they may be carrying the false doctrine virus. They may actually be hearing from demons and teaching doctrines of demons. So so that's the thing. Somebody who wants to make the claim that they're hearing directly from God, they it, you must immediately quarantine them the way you would somebody who potentially has been exposed to the Ebola virus. And then you must run them through an extensive battery of tests to make sure that they don't test positive for false doctrine and heresy. And the way you do that is by testing their teaching against the Word of God. That being the case, do we need people like that? No, we don't. What we need is God's Word. You'll find that, um, you know, since somebody who claims to be hearing directly from God is to immediately be quarantined and have their doctrine tested... That's what the Bible teaches. You have to test the prophets, okay? Um, do we, you know, it's, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't need any prophets. I mean, maybe if God does have something to say, then he'll send somebody who's truly sound and orthodox. But in, in my lifetime, I have yet, I mean, literally yet, to run across a single person who claims to be getting downloads from God that uh, that their doctrine squares with uh, what the Bible teaches. Every single one of them, including Beth Moore, who claim to be getting direct revelation from God, um, there's something screwy and something wrong in their theology and their doctrine. Every 
single one of them. And if they're not teaching the historic Orthodox Christian faith and there's something screwy and squirrely in their theology, they're not hearing from God, plain and simple. So um, that being the case, since I know I can trust God's word, I must be an expert in God's word in order to protect myself and others from false doctrine. But the position of the church towards people who claim to be hearing from God directly must, must be to immediately suspect that they have fallen under the influence of demons, potentially, and therefore must be scrutinized to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. That must be the position of the church, because God warns us that the false teachers are those who rely on their dreams and visions. Okay, moving along. Okay, I don't have intro music for this next segment, but uh, this is a viral video. If you haven't heard it or seen it, um, yeah, you, you may not have a lot of friends on Facebook. Because uh, yeah, when this thing hit, I mean, it's it's like all over the web. It's uh, In fact, it's been viewed almost 7 million times, and it was just uploaded on January 10th. I mean, in three days, it's had almost 7 million views. And it, the name of it is, is Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus, and it's by a gentleman by the name of Jefferson uh, Bethke. And uh, I got to tell you, yeah, I'll give it a B plus right up. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's some he's trying to react to something, but at the same time, he contradicts himself. You'll see what I'm talking about here, but there's much to be commended in this video. He's got he's put his finger on a problem and it's a real problem. However, I don't think he's quite got the solution yet. It's a, it, there's a mixing of law and gospel going on here. But here's the, uh, the spoken word video, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. It's gone viral. Listen in. Okay, there's a uh, symbol here. It says, Jesus is greater than religion. We'll pay attention to how he defines things here. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? Okay, now, good point so far. Um, my question is, how is he defining religion there? Okay, my assumption is that he's defining it along the lines of somebody who's legalistic and self-righteous. For instance, yeah, no true Christian would ever vote for X Y Z candidate or vote for somebody in such and such a party. Well, that's legalism, and that's not Christianity, and that's not what Jesus is about. Okay. Granted, I got it. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might... Mm, you know, calls religious people whores. Yeah, actually, um, in the Old Testament, it's people who worship false gods who are called whores. Um, it, you know, the nation of Israel, that was supposed, you know, they're, you, they're kind of a picture of the bride of Christ, if you would. And God married himself to Israel, and Israel then chases after other false gods, and they're called whores. So that's not quite right. They preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, 
They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. Yeah, now this is true, because Jesus going after the Pharisees who were into legalistic self-righteousness likened them to whitewashed tombs, okay? Yeah, okay. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. This is true. Legalistic self-righteousness, if that's how he's defining it, you know, the people who say that Christianity is about keeping the law, they're, they've bought the Galatian heresy, that somehow it's all about behavior modification. Now, truly, behaviors are modified as a result of the biblical gospel because people are regenerated. But this is where he's kind of, he, there's some definitional work he needs to do here. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. Yeah, notice here, though. He's, on the one hand, he's bashing self-righteous religion. But on the other hand, he's preaching works. My question is, you know, here's the deal. Um, there are plenty of Christians who see the, the statuses I sent out on my Facebook who question whether or not I'm a Christian. <laughs> yeah, it's true because I'm always challenging false doctrine and false idols, and I do so in such a way that I don't give professional courtesy to false teaching. Okay, but that aside, here's the deal. Um, listen, if you want to know whether I'm a Christian or not, you need to you need to listen to what I believe, teach, and confess. Am I proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins? Is salvation by grace through faith without works? And what I mean by that, you know, this is the justification category. Now, true, those who are truly justified do good works. They can't help but do good works. And if you think that, uh, you know, the good works don't flow from somebody who's been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins... Uh, you got another thing coming. You don't understand the biblical gospel. But, yeah, he's confusing law and gospel here, and that's that's where the rub is because at the, on the one hand, he's condemning self-righteousness, but at the same time, he thinks he, he's looking to works again to somehow solve the problem. That's the issue. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me, acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Okay. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. Yeah. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. This is true. Yeah, it, absolutely. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. That's right, you need to confess it and have it forgiven. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, he looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember, he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports... He was called that by self-righteous Pharisees who thought they were justified by their law-keeping. Self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. 
how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. That was good stuff. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Right on. Which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Yep. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is getting good. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. Yeah, that's a little sentimental. And he absorbed all your sin, and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. All right, so yeah, it is finished. I think he meant it. And by the way, there's a verse here. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here's the deal. I'm I literally I, there's a lot of good things in this video. There's a few things that make you go, mm, okay. He doesn't he he hasn't quite teased out the proper distinction of law and gospel, but he's got them in big block. And so. I mean, if uh, if I were a college professor and he were to turn this in as some kind of a class project or something like that, I would give him a B plus. Okay, um, at least for you know really trying to hammer out the proper distinction of law and gospel, he confuses it in the middle of this. But uh, he does land on his feet with the biblical gospel. So, there. I mean, as far as you know, you know, you as a listener, you know, what should you think of it? commend him where you know, for the good that he's done and and maybe even you know admonish him to consider pushing just a little bit farther into the proper distinction of law and gospel in fact i'm going to i'm going to reach out to him via email and uh, send him uh, uh, a link to the kindle book the proper distinction of law and gospel because I, I think he this is the general direction he's going he's reacting against something and I think he's uh, he's generally got it right. A couple of things he slips on, but uh, much to be commended there. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, <clears throat> do another Code Orange revival update to uh, <laughs> take a listen to Jensen Franklin's mythology. It wasn't theology. It was flat-out mythology that he... Uh, preached last night at uh, the Code Orange Revival there at Elevation Church. You're not going to want to miss that. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard at, on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, when somebody claims to be hearing from God, you must immediately put them in quarantine and run an extensive battery of theological, doctrinal, creedal tests on them before you release them to the public. Yeah, that's true. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. Uh, one says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038.
Yep, Steam Furtick update. Code Orange Revival? Revival of Mythology. He walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf it was apricot. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself. So vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? Yeah, you're thinking 12 days of that. We got to listen to 12 days of Roseboro doing Blame Furtick. He's the one who put on this 12 days of heresy. Yeah, I, I, it's not my fault I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're saying, oh, yeah, this is just going to be painful. Right. <laughs> it's painful all around for all of us, okay? So I just wanted to share. you got to share along with me in my complete and utter misery. Anyway, last night, uh, <clears throat> TBN televangelist Jensen Franklin got to do the <laughs> deliver his Bible teaching you can't even call it that. I mean, ser- seriously. Um, yeah, he delivered his Bible teaching for everybody at uh, Stephen Furtick's Code Orange Revival. And seriously, I mean, I really am convinced they're reviving mythology. What you're about to hear is every bit as myth- of uh, uh, well, it's every bit as much a mythology as you would expect to hear from like Roman Catholics. You know, the, you you, re- you all heard of the Treasury of Merit, okay? Yeah, this is this, this is. Let me tell you about the, the Treasury of Merit because it, it actually kind of hooks into this. Um, if you're familiar with medieval uh, monkery, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my uh, my favorite term for dis- describing those who lock themselves in a monastery. If you're familiar with medieval monkery, the idea was this: is that the monks they would lock themselves in the monastery and their good works would exceed those required to save them and so their excessive good works would be stored up in the treasury of merit yeah which could then be applied to other people to help lessen their time in purgatory and stuff like that and you're thinking really yeah it's true um that's exactly what they believed and taught it's they, we talk about this a lot in the lutheran confessions the book of concord well, we, and if you haven't read the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, you gotta read it. It's fantastic, especially the article on justification, and it, which t- mentions this treasury of merit and stuff like that. But uh, here's the deal: you're thinking, how could somebody believe such a thing? The Bible doesn't say anything even remotely approaching it. Well, right, but see, that's the thing. When you're hearing directly from the Spirit, who needs a Bible? You can just wing it and make up your own stuff. And so Jensen Franklin, a televangelist who was doing the uh, and preaching at the Code Orange Revival last night. Well, he just spun his own mythology last night, and it it actually sounds very similar to the Treasury of Merit, and I mean is completely oblivious to the category, the biblical categories of law and gospel. But yeah, here's Jensen Franklin. We're gonna do, listen to about 15 minutes of this, and then I'm gonna floss my brain out by playing a couple of good sermons. From Pastor Brent Kuhlman of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. It's 
<laughs> I, I need a fl- I need a good theological flossing after this uh, mythological hose down. But <laughs> listen to this. Here we go. So I want to speak tonight for a few moments on the faithfulness of God. Okay, that's what at the beginning of Jensen Franklin's uh, sermon, he said he wants to talk about the faithfulness of God. I mean, wow, we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. You mean the gospel and how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and talk about God's mercy and forgiveness won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross and his merits? <laughs> yeah, if that's what you're expecting, you got another thing coming. So we're going to hear about the faithfulness of God. Well, tell me more, Jensen. Psalms 89, verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Psalms 89 and verse 1, I promise I won't preach long tonight. I, uh, I, um, I don't preach Pharaoh sermons. Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. I'm, I'm going to let you go because y'all got 10 more nights. And, uh, and you're going to be here every night. And, and I think I'm going to come back and just sit in the audience. Can I? This is crazy. This is crazy. Every pastor needs this. Psalms 89. I will sing every, of the mercies. Every pastor needs that. They, okay, well, they, every pastor needs God's word. True. They need to hear the biblical gospel. They need to hear the long gospel rightly preached and distinguished. I agree. Every pastor needs that. But I don't think, I don't think there's a person on the planet that needs to hear what we're about to hear. Unless, of course, you know, you really want them to go to hell for believing in mythology and false doctrine. He's of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your, everybody say the word if you've got a Bible, faithfulness to all generations. For I have said mercy shall be built up, the the King James says laid up, mercy shall be laid up, stored up forever. Okay, stop. Okay, now if Jensen Franklin were to stop right there, I mean seriously, I would have applauded him. We just heard, you know, it, it, it from the Psalms, you know, something that has to do with the mercies of God. Let me, in fact, let me read this. Psalm 89. I'll start at verse 1. I'm going to read it from the ESV. Not that I'm, that I'm taking issue with the translation he's using. Not at all. It's just the ESV is, this, is when I'm working in the English language, this is the Bible I prefer. Uh, and this is the one I teach from now, too, by the way. Um, Psalm 89, 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now, whose steadfast love is this? The steadfast love of the Lord, Yahweh. Okay, David says he's going to make known the faithfulness of the Lord, Yahweh, to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in heaven In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now notice here, verse 4, this is a prophecy, literally a prophecy of Jesus Christ. I will establish your offspring forever. Notice it's not offsprings, but offspring. That would be the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? 
who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a great God to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you shall still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass and scattered your enemies with your mighty arms. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day. In and in your righteousness are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> this is an amazing psalm and it's all about the lord it's about jesus i mean the great prophecy right here in the middle of it so okay so he starts off jensen franklin talk we're going to talk about the faithfulness of the lord he goes to psalm 89 a psalm that's dripping with things all about the lord and what he's done for us ah okay so it i mean I mean, there couldn't have been a greater setup to talk about the faithfulness of the Lord. Well, let's see where he goes with this. Notice at this point, he's going to begin hopscotching through the text, kind of just jumping ahead to select verses and kind of skipping over things. Watch. And then one more look over with me in the same chapter, verse 30. Powerful, powerful message to young people. In verse 30, if your sons, God speaking to David, if your sons forsake my law, if they do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with a rod. Whom the Lord loveth, he whippeth. Hmm. Um. Okay. Weird that he would jump to that verse from where he, you know, from, oh, weird. Uh, one guy said he beateth the hell out of. I, <laughs> amen. I didn't say that. I'm just quoting him. But, but watch this now. I'll, I'll punish their transgressions with the rod. Watch. Verse 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from them, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. I love this next scripture, Mike. Why is he skipping uh, through this text? Um, hmm, that's bizarre. Because, by the way, that's um, that's a problematic thing to be doing, to just hopscotch through a text and, you know, like, highlight the thing you want to talk about and just let cut and fall to the floor the things you don't want to talk about. Hmm. So I left off at verse 18. Let's see what's going on here. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Psalm 89, verse 19. 
Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Oh, yeah. This this is more prophecy about Jesus, the greater son of David, okay? The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. (laughs) Who is Psalm 89 about? It's about Jesus. Really, this is a prophecy about Christ. Weird that he skips, he's skipping all of this stuff about Jesus, yet he's saying that he's talking about the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, verse 27, I will, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep with him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Ah, yeah, Psalm 89 is about Jesus. This is a messianic psalm. Maybe that's the reason why he's hopscotching here, so that he can avoid all that stuff about Jesus. And yet he says he wants to talk about the faithfulness and the mercy of God. It's almost impossible to discuss that without Jesus, don't you think? But we continue. My covenant I will not break. My covenant I will not break, neither will I alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. This scripture is talking about David. And David... No, this scripture is talking about Jesus. ...is giving us some amazing insight into the faithfulness of God and even the mercy of God. And when we're faithful... Uh, Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you catch that transition? That's how quickly deception goes, by the way. Okay? Did you catch it? Let me play it again. Watch what he does here. He says he's going to talk about the faithfulness and mercy of God, right? Well, the faithfulness and mercy of God is the faithfulness and mercy of God. It's not your faithfulness or my faithfulness, but what he what he does here, he, he talks out of both sides of his mouth and he does it so quick, you can't detect the transition unless you're really listening for it. So listen again, watch what he does. He says he's going to talk about the faithfulness and mercy of God, and then he, without even pausing to take a breath, switches the subject to your faithfulness. Here we go. 
is giving us some amazing insight into the faithfulness of God and even the mercy of God. And when we're faithful, when one generation is faithful... Did you catch that? When we're faithful, when one generation is faithful, that's not the mercy of God, and that's not the faithfulness of God, our faithfulness. By the way, um, that's really not even a biblical category. Um, Here's the reason why. Because uh, when you understand the biblical gospel, the biblical narrative teaches us that we are of the uh, people who have rebelled against God. We are all by nature sinners. And this side of the resurrection, well, we still wrestle with our sinful nature. As a result of it, we are daily in need of much forgiveness. Remember, Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, Part of it was a daily petition where you ask God to forgive you your trespasses. Okay? This is a daily prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we're daily in need of the forgiveness of sins, can we truly say that we're being faithful? Let me give you another measure that you can test to see whether or not you're faithful. Uh, Just a simple look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'm not going to list them all, but I mean, commandments go along the lines of this. You shall have no other gods. Idolatry is a sin. And that may, idolatry means, uh, you know, any trusting and fearing and loving in anything above God. Are you guilty of that? You bet you, you bet your bippy you are. Doesn't matter if you bow down to a graven image. What matters is whether or not you're fearing and trusting in something above God and loving it above God. You're an idolater when you do that. How about misusing the name of the Lord your God? It, uh, misusing in the name of the Lord your God is more than just typing OMG into your smartphone. It has to do with swearing and using God's name falsely or using God's name to deceive. This is the sin that most pastors commit. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. How are you doing? Can you honestly say, oh, yeah, I keep all of those perfectly, so I'm faithful? No. See, when we examine the Ten Commandments and look at what they demand from us, We understand exactly why when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, it included a daily prayer asking God to forgive us of our sins. So Jensen Franklin's pulling a fast one here. He says he's going to talk about the faithfulness of God, and he switched the subject to our faithfulness, which is a non-category biblically, because in order for us to say we're faithful to God, we have to keep God's law perfectly. Otherwise, we're not being faithful. We're being disobedient. Uh, Unless we keep God's law perfectly, we're not obedient, we're disobedient. Again, Jesus tells us to pray every day, forgive us our trespasses. You know what I'm saying here? I'm backing it up just a smidge. Watch the transition. He's giving us some amazing insight into the faithfulness of God and even the mercy of God. And when we're faithful, when one generation is faithful, it is possible to store up mercy for the next generation. When we're faithful, it's possible for us to store up mercy for the next generation? (laughs) That's not what the biblical text says at all. In fact, that sounds a lot like the Roman Catholic mythology doctrine known as the treasury of merit. Really? So 
apparently we could be so faithful we can store up mercy for the next generation. Weird. I thought Jesus was the sinless one. He's the faithful one prophesied in Psalm 89, and it's his righteousness that's imputed to us. Here, Jensen Franklin is literally teaching that our faithfulness can be imputed to the next generation, almost Roman Catholic treasury of merit style. Listen again. When one generation is faithful, it is possible to store up mercy for the next generation. All right, even if it was possible, can point me to one generation, just one, one generation since Adam and Eve that is has been faithful. Yeah, not one comes to mind. It's possible that what you're doing right now is not just affecting here and now. As you serve God in a church, as you worship... Wait, 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 wait. wait. I thought you said you were going to talk about the faithfulness and mercy of God. When I serve God, when I do this, when I do that. You're not preaching about the faithfulness and mercy of God. You're preaching about human self-righteousness, which biblically there isn't even such a category. As you give God your everything you give him... We just think about us here and now, but the truth is it's possible to store up, to lay up blessing, mercy, grace for generations. The faithfulness of... Yeah, it's stored up because of what Jesus did, not because of anything I do. ...of God is not just for one time, it is generational. When Solomon went to build his temple... That are God's temple that God told. Now watch what he does here. He's going to allegorize a historical text, a historical narrative. Watch what he does here. Told him to build. An amazing thing happened. The Bible said that his father David had laid up or stored up one million talents of silver. By the way, you know what that verse means? It means that David stored up one million talents of silver. That's all it means. This is a historical description of a historical event. There's, he's, notice he's allegorizing this and spiritualizing it so that he can spin his own theology out of it. But it, this text doesn't teach any of the stuff that he's saying. And 100,000 talents of gold. He had in the cost of today's market, that would be around $85 billion that the father had stored up and laid up for the son so that he could do his purpose and his call. How uh, much? No, he stored up the building supplies because God wouldn't let him build the temple so that his son could build the temple. That's all that means. Easier was the life of the son because the father had laid up resources that would. Believe me when I tell you, it's going to get crazier from here. Would be a great blessing and enable him to fulfill the call of God upon his life. Not only did David lay up financial blessing, but he laid up some spiritual blessings that maybe you've never considered. Really, the David built, laid up spiritual blessings for Solomon. You got a passage that says that? ...that I want to challenge you on, and I want you to see how powerful this thing called mercy and faithfulness of God really is. Again, he's calling it faithfulness and mercy of God, but it's actually all about your faithfulness so that your faithfulness then stores up mercy for the next generation. It's not God's faithfulness. It's yours. You see, 
I believe that we can affect our children for generations to come. This is true biblically, by the way. Um, you ever heard of Adam and Eve's sin? Yeah, it's imputed to you as if you're the one who committed it. So, yeah, Adam and Eve have caused every human being descended from them to be caused to be born dead in trespasses and sins. Well, this is absolutely true. Um, except for he's not really teaching that here because he's going to basically teach that, well, because bad people somehow set up their, uh, their, their progen, you know, their, their kids and their grandchildren up for spiritual failure, supposedly, that you can set your children up for spiritual success by your obedience and faithfulness. That's really what he's going to teach. Here, listen. Our lives will either be stepping stones or stumbling blocks. I want my children to get to heaven partly because of me, not in spite of me. Um, yeah, if my children uh, make it to heaven, and I totally assume that that's going to be the case because they all trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, it'll be purely because of what Christ did for them. Plain and simple. We're saved by grace through faith on account of Christ's righteousness given to us and our sinfulness laid on him and, and, and propiti- God's wrath being propitiated by his sufferings and death. I had nothing to do with that. You get what I'm saying? Anybody who's saved, it's purely the work of Christ. I want my children, I want my children to be overcomers and they've got enough to overcome without having to overcome me. Overcome a bunch of mess that I leave for them, a bunch of... Well, are you descended from Adam and Eve? You, yeah, you are. So you passed along the corrupted sinful nature to your children that you inherited from Adam and Eve. Uh, uh, Bondages that I've left them in. So we have the power to lay up the mercies of God. There we go again. Power to lay up the mercies of God. You got a verse that says that? Now, I'm going to sound like I'm negative for a few moments, but just stay with me. Because the Bible begins in the Old Covenant, and it talks about how that sin could be stored up and laid up. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, it says, If they bow down to idols, the Lord God is jealous, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children until until the eighth generation. There's something about iniquity that can be stored up. There's something about iniquity that can... Oh, I'm going to scream. ...and be laid up and passed on. There's something about traits and habits and bondages and why is it that that this is such a shallow view of sin and someone's an alcoholic the tendency becomes greater for the children it's a proven statistic yeah because we're all dead in trespasses and sins and sin just gets goes from bad to worse and from worse to unbelievably bad Drugs and alcoholism, marital breakup, anger and abuse. It's possible to store it up and suddenly the children are wrestling with the same anger issues, the same bondages. Anger issues. The same addictions that the parents had. Jeremiah. By the way, the Bible teaches that the reason why you sin is because you're a sinner. That means you have a corrupted sinful nature. It does not teach that you are a sinner because you sin. What he's teaching here is a theology that says you're a sinner because you sin. 32 and 8 said that he would recompense the iniquity 
of the fathers in the bosom of the children after them. I'm glad we're not in the Old Covenant, but there was a truth that was laid out in the Old Covenant. Job 21 and 19 said, Where did Jensen Franklin go to seminary? Really? said, God lays up the iniquity for their children. That what they did would affect their children. Now we move into the New Testament. And he said in 2 Corinthians 12, children ought not to be laying up for their parents, but parents ought to be laying up something for their children. A good man... Uh, 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 that's talking about money. It's, it's, oh my goodness. That, that passage in, in Corinthians is talking about parents literally saving up financial resources, physical money, so to, it, to pass along to their children. And the scripture said, leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And that's not necessarily just talking about money. There yeah, it is. Read it in context, sir. You're spiritualizing it without any warrant in the text that can say that you can do that. There is an inheritance of faith. There is an inheritance of... of okay, great. If there's an inheritance of faith, prove it with clear passages. Of godly living, there is an inheritance of something about the way that we carry on our lives that absolutely can be passed down to our children. Oh, yeah, so your righteousness, you don't have any, can be passed on to your children. Good night. So the imputation of your self-righteousness to your children, which the Bible doesn't teach at all. This is flat out heresy. We're laying up for our children in one way or the other, either wrong ways or right ways, but you're laying up something. You're affecting something. Yeah, you're laying up heresy here, like chalking it up big time, big numbers on the board here on the heresy chart. It can get in your genes. You, you remember? Yeah, it, sin is uh, down on as a corruption of our nature that that is absolutely it get down deep. Yeah. For Levi, the Bible said that Levi <laughs> paid Abraham paid tithes, and God gave credit to it to Levi. It was Levi's genes. It, it got in his genes. No, that's not what it says. It says that Levi gave tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, not the other way around. You flipped it, sir. That's in your Bible, New Testament. God blessed the great-grandson because of the old man obeying God. Notice, this isn't about God's mercy. This is about law, obedience. Proverbs 13 and 32, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I'm going somewhere. Yeah, again, every time he finds an inheritance passage, he turns it into something spiritual so that he can teach this. But the inheritance that's talked about in these passages is literal physical money inheritance. Just hang in there with me. You there? No. It would be one thing if you live a sinful, wicked life and you live into yourself. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's what all of us do. But the Bible said no one lives unto themselves, and no one dies unto themselves. 
Meaning you're affecting somebody. You're impacting somebody. Your, your acts of righteousness are having an effect or your acts of unrighteousness are having an effect. The promise of God that He made to David is profound, Stephen. It is profound. Listen to what God said. He said, if your children commit adultery because I'm in covenant with you, because you've given me your whole heart, David, because you're such a worse... Uh, notice he's not reading the text. He's now adding all kinds of stuff to it. This is eisegesis. Worshiper, and you love me so much, I'm making a covenant with you, an everlasting covenant, a generational covenant. And he said, if your children commit iniquity, I will chasten them with a rod. Again, when you read it in context, this, this covenant isn't made with David. It's made with his greater son, Jesus, the promised offspring. You know what that means in my translation? It, it God, means you're a heretic. God won't treat my kids like he treats somebody else's kids. Oh, my goodness. You have got to be kidding me. If I live for God. Well, that's a big if, and since we all are sinners by nature and still have still sin, well, they won't. You, you can't. You don't have any righteousness of your own to pass on to them. Um, some of you young people are trying your best to be good sinners, but you're ruined. Because you've got a mama or a daddy that knows how to pray. Oh, yeah, right. You're ruined to sin because your parents. Oh, come on. This guy doesn't even know what biblical sin is. That knows how to read that book. You can go to the same parties. You can go to the same places. You can try to be a big bad sinner. But you this is flat out ear scratching mythology, making promises for God that are not in the scriptures when you read it in context. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. You'll never be a successful sinner. You'll never fit in. You'll never belong. There's too much grace stored up. There's too much. Oh, right. Too much grace stored up. Going in in your family. There's too much mercy that's being stored up. You don't even know what grace and mercy are, sir. Some granny somewhere prayed you through. Somebody has stored up prayer. Sit down just a minute. Let me preach now. Yeah, this is apparently the Pentecostal version of the treasury of merit. Every bit is a mythological doctrine as the treasury of merit from Roman Catholicism. I, I am the product. I am a third genera fourth, my, third generational preacher. Pentecostal preacher. I believe, I believe there'll be, I believe there'll be some Pentecostals in heaven if we don't run past it. I, I believe there'll be a few of them. And I, I, the only difference between a preacher and a teacher is a preacher tells it, or a teacher tells it, and a preacher yells it. I'm a yeller. I'm sorry. I, I get excited. I'll try to calm down, but I, I get excited. But I doubt it. But listen, listen. So my dad and my mom and their dads and their moms and their dad. My mom is on staff at my church. She is a stone from, from Middlesex, North Carolina. They live in Middle... Notice now he's telling stories from his life. He's not preaching the text. Middlesex, North Carolina. So my, now, now, now listen to this. My mother had 27 brothers and sisters. 
Somebody said it doesn't sound like middle sex. It sounds like plenty of sex. That's, that's what... <laughs> Snare drum. <laughs> True story. My mom, my dad ruined me. And I'm going to tell you why. Now, I've got, only got five children. But my mom and my dad prayed for me, fasted for me. But he was a pastor. She was the, she was the pastor's wife. All I've, all... May I point out the fact that Jesus Christ bled for you, and he was sinless, and your parents were recipients of his grace because they are sinners too. All I've ever known is church. But when I hit my teenage years, Stephen, I, I, something in me said, there's more out in the world than there is in the church. Something in me started getting, I want to I I, be with the popular crowd. I want to run with those kids. I want to do that. I want to do that. And, and so I decided I was going to be a big, bad sinner. True story. I'm not making this up. First time I go out, they put a joint to me. They're all knowing, calling me the preacher's kid. I take the joint. I smoke it. I don't feel nothing. I smoke another one. I don't feel nothing. I smoke another one. I don't feel nothing. Finally, I did get high, but here's the difference. So really, um, if, you're, if your parents are righteous enough and they're faithful enough, then when, uh, then when you try to go out and sin, uh, you, like trying to get high on a joint, it won't work. This is not a biblical teaching. This is flat-out mythology. When my friends who didn't have Christian parents would get high, they would see pink elephants. They would see psychedelic colors. I'd get high and I'd see Moses. And I'd see Jesus. I'd see the four horses of the apocalypse. I, I, I was petrified the rapture was going to take place any minute. I was going to be in a movie called Left Behind. Anybody know? I'm telling some of you teenagers, you'll never be successful in the world. It'll never fulfill you. It'll never be what you're looking for. It's in the church. It's in Christ. You need Jesus. Yeah, what's the role that Jesus played here? Because apparently you gave all the credit to your parents. You need Jesus. You won't find it in a bottle. You won't find it in a joint. You won't find it in crack cocaine. You won't find it in a bed of sin. You were created for God and his hand is on your life. Your body is his temple. Yeah, notice he's not calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's basically saying if your mommy and daddy were faithful, then sin won't taste as good to you. Uh-huh. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins. Where's the cross? Somebody give him praise if you believe God has his hand on this generation. Yeah, there you go. So that's a sampling of the false doctrine and mythology taught by um, <clears throat> Jensen Franklin at the Code Orange Revile. I'm sorry, Revival out there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, boy, that's just awful. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, 
You can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll get back. Two good sermons, a short twin spin from uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman to kind of clear our minds out of this heresy. Good night. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Good night. That was awful. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons come to us via trinity lutheran church murdoch nebraska pastor brent coolman presiding i might have to put brent into the regular rotation the name of the sermon is entitled loving god and loving neighbor now we're going to do a twin spin we'll focus on this one first and then we'll reset and listen to the next one Loving God and Loving Neighbor. It's based upon the uh, gospel text taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 33 through 46, which I will read for you shortly. Now, I want you to compare Pastor Kuhlman's handling of God's law and what it really teaches us regarding our sinfulness 
and Jensen Franklin, who's come up with a mythology that you can pass along your faithfulness and your righteousness to the next generation. I mean, the difference is night and day. So hang on a second here. Let me kill the music because I need to read the biblical text. So uh, the gospel reading for this is taken from Matthew chapter 22. I'll read it for you, uh, starting verse 30, uh, 34. When, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these the two two commandments depend, all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, <clears throat> saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, they said, Well, he's the son of David. And he said to them, So how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is it that he is his son? And not one of them was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That's the gospel text that forms the basis of this sermon entitled, Loving God and Neighbor. Here's Pastor Kuhlman. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, well, you'd better buckle up your seatbelt because it's going to come fast and furious today. We've got loads from the Lord in the text. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the Hebrew way of saying all of you, the whole lot of you, every last bit of you, love the Lord your God with everything that you've got. This is the first and the greatest commandment, if any of you were wondering. The second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. This is what the Ten Commandments require. Commandments 1 through 3 summarize the first thing that Jesus said today. 1 through 3 are all about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Commandments 4 through 10 are summarized by Jesus in this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, brothers and sisters, the love of God and the love of neighbor go hand in hand. They go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't claim to love God and then hate your neighbor. And vice versa. Love, what is it? Here's where you better uh, buckle up the seatbelts. What is love? Is it a feeling? (laughs) Is it something that you fall into? Huh? Is it a warm fuzzy? No, to all of the above. Does that shock you? It should. Because you are all so used to defining love in the way of the latest Nicholas Sparks book. The Twilight novels and the movies. Lady Gaga's Caught in a Bad Romance video. Taylor Swift's You Belong to Me. Soap operas like Days of Our Lives or such TV gunk shows. And rot, they're rot. Like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. So what is love? 
I tell you that it is the orientation of the will in action towards someone else. Love is a choice. It is an act of the will. And so the essence of loving God and your neighbor doesn't mean that you have particular feelings. Oh, you may have feelings associated with love, but I'm here to tell you, maybe for the first time in your life, that love essentially is not a feeling. Are you ready to leave now? And so when I ask younger couples why they want to get married, you know what they say. Because we love each other. Well, from now on, I'm going to respond to that answer in this way. Well, that's nice. That's nice. Now I want you to come up with a better reason why you want to get married. Are you shocked again? Good. (laughs) Why is that? Because we've got everything backwards. Love does not define and shape marriage. Marriage defines and shapes love. Love is an orientation between a husband and a wife because they are husband and wife. Now the same could be applied. What I've just said could be applied in the other direction. You see, when couples want to end their marriage, what do they normally say? If I had $100 for every time I've heard this, I'd be a billionaire and I'd no longer have to preach. And you'd probably be glad. But when couples want to end their marriage, this is what I hear all the time. It's because they've what? They've fallen out of love with each other. And now I'm going to say from now on this, I'm going to say, that's nice. Now why don't you come up with a better reason why you're going to end your marriage? Brothers and sisters, love is not something that you fall into. What do you fall into? Holes. Ditches. Pits. Falling means losing your balance. Falling means losing your control. Falling (coughs) is an out-of-control experience. How many of you have have, have had nightmares about (coughs) falling? Love, however, is a deliberate act of the will. It is a choice. To love means to deliberately turn outside of yourself to someone else. To love means to give away something of yourself to someone else expecting nothing, absolutely nothing in return. You see, in the New Testament, love as a fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is described in these terms. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It's not boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrong, but rather it rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Brothers and sisters, that is the life of self-sacrifice. It is the death of self and all selfishness. To love, then, is to be turned outwardly away from ourselves, our selfish selves, to somebody else. And who would that be according to Jesus in the text? Hmm? (laughs) To God and your neighbor. Now, you've got many neighbors, more than you'd ever realize. That includes the, doc, the, peop, the people at the doctor or dentist's office, the person in line at the grocery store, your roommate at the nursing home, your husband, <clears throat> your wife, your child, and yes, 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 even your in-laws. 
It includes the church member who's sitting next to you this morning, your co-workers, your fellow students, even your boss at work. Anyone that God puts in your life is your neighbor who needs your love, no matter whether you like them or not. No matter whether they like you or not. And if you don't love your neighbor, the very people that you can see with your eyes, how can you claim to love God whom you don't see with your eyes? You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus links the love of your neighbor with the love of God. You love God by loving your neighbor. The cup of cold water, the cup of coffee, the glass of iced tea or milk that you give to someone who is thirsty, you give to God. The macaroni and cheese, the cheeseburger, the tater tot casserole that you give to hungry mouths, you give to God. The comforting note or the consoling words that you give to someone who is suffering, you give to God. The time and the money that you give to edify and enrich the lives of other people at home, at work, in the community, or the congregation are time and money that are offered to God. How else do you love God? First, by having no other idols in your heart, by giving your wholehearted fear, love, and trust to the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You love God in the use of his most holy name in worship and prayer. And by your glad attention to his word, you love God by honoring the authorities that he's placed over you, by caring for the health and well-being of your neighbor's body, by not adulterating marriage in any way, by improving your neighbor's property, investments, and money, by defending your neighbor's reputation and being content with whatever God has given you in this life. Now, those are just some of the ways that you can love God and neighbor. I could go on and on, but uh, you don't have the time and neither do I. When you love God in these ways... When you love in those ways, I should say, you reflect God's love to other people. The problem is the old sinful nature in all of us. Here's the problem. Uh, We don't want to do that. You and I both fail to love God and our neighbor. In fact, we rebel against it. We instead revel in revenge, spite, grudges, and hate. And so for all of us, it is time for us to repent. It is time for us to confess the love of ourselves and the idolatry of ourselves. And so the next question from Scripture comes, who can be saved then? After all, we cannot do perfectly what Jesus says in the text. None of us love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and none of us love our neighbors as ourselves. So then who can be saved? Well, none of us. If our attention is on ourselves and on our loving. And so in the text, Jesus directs us to himself. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, that's a no-brainer. They all knew that one. He's the son of David. Another, he's from the royal bloodline of the king, the messianic king. But then Jesus blows their minds when he says, ah, but he's also David's Lord, David's God. In fact, he's the God-man, God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and man, born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, Jesus the Christ came as the head of a new humanity. He is the human that God intended humanity to be. He came to be the Holy One as His Father in Heaven is holy. He came to restore the image of God to our fallen and sinful humanity. He came to love God with His whole heart, mind, and soul, with His entire being. He came to love His neighbor as Himself. And Jesus came to love you with God's love. Jesus loved you and me when we were the least lovely or loving. Jesus is love in the flesh to the loveless. He loved you and me to death on the cross. While we were yet God's enemies, Scripture says, he died for us. 
And so while we were dead in our sins, Jesus gave us his perfect, his perfect and holy life into death. And now his passion and Good Friday and Easter Sunday benefits are all yours. Eternal life is yours. All your sins are forgiven in Christ. The complete and perfect love of God is now yours in Jesus. And so your faith in Jesus then does give birth to love, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when you love, and when you want to love, it is because you have first been loved by God and his son, Jesus Christ. Christ's death and resurrection now frees you, frees you to love God and the neighbor. You no longer have to love, you get to. You don't love in order to be saved. You love because you are saved in Jesus. You don't love to win God's favor. You love because God favors you already in his son Jesus. You don't love God so that he'll love you. You love because God has first loved you so incredibly and graciously in Jesus with the greatest love you'll ever know, the bloody crucified love of the cross. Brothers and sisters, greater than your love and greater than the law that judges your love is Jesus, the Christ, who loves you perfectly. King David's son and King David's Lord. On Jesus, on him, hangs the sin of the world. And on Jesus hangs your life and your salvation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Yeah, um, how's your faithfulness holding up after hearing that sermon? How are you doing at loving God and loving neighbor now that you know what it really means and what it demands from you? Not so good. Thankfully, Pastor Kuhlman pointed us to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, and for his bloody death on the cross for your sins and for mine, because daily we do not love God and love neighbor as we ought and as we should. Thank you, Pastor Kuhlman. All right, now I promised you that this would be a twin spin because Pastor Kuhlman's sermons are just a bit on the short side. So sermon number two uh, it, it also... Um, preached by Pastor Kuhlman, um, is simply entitled Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 through 20. That's the name of the sermon, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So let me read them. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Here again is Pastor Kuhlman. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text is the previous verses read before the Holy Gospel today, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the neighborhood of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptizer, they answered, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? He asked them. You are the Christ, Simon Peter answered, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. 
Jesus answered him, Because no flesh and blood but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Anything you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and anything you loose or free on earth will be freed or loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the promised Savior. Thus far the text. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, in the text, Jesus asks a heavy weight theological question. Uh, He's doing a little mission work on you today. Did you hear it? Were you paying attention? When the Lord asks you a question, whether you're at Caesarea Philippi or in McPherson, Kansas, who do you say that I am? (laughs) There it is. That's the question from the Lord Jesus Christ to you. Who do you say that I am? The Lord would pull out a confession from your churning hearts this morning. And before you can answer, Peter steps up to the plate. He belts a confession out. Usually when you're hanging around Peter, you can't get a word in edgewise, you remember. Peter confesses, and he confesses boldly without any hesitation. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You, Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. And Peter is correct. He is right. Faithfully confesses. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of whom the entire Old Testament predicted, in whom all the Old Testament promises are fulfilled. Yes, Jesus is God's divine Son in the flesh. He is the eternal through whom all things were created, word made flesh who dwells among us, as St. John's Gospel puts it. He is the kingdom of God walking on the earth. He is the king himself who searches and rescues the lost. It's no wonder then that Jesus blesses Peter. Oh, God bless you, Peter. Your confession is right on. You didn't make this up on your own, Peter. No flesh and blood confession here, but rather a true confession of me, just as it was given you to say by my Father who is in heaven. Had Peter been up to heaven? No. But heaven broke wide open, and the rain of God's heaven came down to Peter and all the other disciples in the very body and person of Jesus himself. In Jesus, the Father has rolled up his sleeves and has been at work among his people Israel, as well as the entire world, for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the entire world. So, what about you? Jesus asks today. Who do you say that I am? What's your answer? It's time to confess because loads are at stake here. Many would say he's one of the prophets, but that doesn't cut it, does it? Jesus as one of the prophets like Jeremiah or John the Baptist, that doesn't save anybody. The only answer that holds, the only answer that is salvific, is this one. Jesus, you are the Christ. 
Jesus, you are the son of the living God. God bless you too. Faithfully confessed. You couldn't cook up a confession like that on your own because the Father has revealed this truth to you in Jesus. And most especially when Jesus does the Christ, the Son of the living God job on the night when he is betrayed, when he suffers under Pontius Pilate, when he is brutally nailed to the tree, when he is laid graveyard dead in the tomb, and on the third day when he rises from that tomb. Yes, that's the ticket. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. That's when he is son of the living God revealed most by the Father. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for you. Seriously, that's good news. For when you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, you are confessing him as what? Savior. And not just any kind of Savior, like small s Savior, but only Savior, capital S Savior. It's Jesus who saves. What does that mean? That means that you and I don't, <laughs> nor anyone else for that matter. He's capital S Savior, capital S Savior of sinners, the only one. While you and I were still sinners, Scripture says, totally unable to save ourselves, dead in our sins we were, that's when he died for us. That's the Christ job, isn't it? That's the son of the living God job. Calvary, Good Friday. The sacrifice of his blood on the cross cleanses and purifies us from all our sin. Yes, that's right. All, all sin. You name it. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, doesn't leave any of it out of his dying. He takes away the sin of the world by bearing it all in his body and answering for all of it in his crucified sacrifice on the cross. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And with such a solid rock confession, Jesus then makes a most amazing promise, doesn't he? I mean, this is, this is incredible, isn't it? <laughs> he says, you know, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon that confession that you just made. I will build my church on what you've just confessed as the truth. And then Jesus says there's even more. Not even the gates of hell can destroy the church that I'm going to build. I will build my church. <laughs> We'd better hear that one again. I will build my church is Christ's promise. And so, brothers and sisters, that means it is high time for all of us to repent. To scrap and to die to all of our brilliant personal and corporate plans to build, transform, and keep the church alive and successful in the world. Let's get it straight. We don't build the church. We do not preserve the church. We do not save the church. Jesus does. That's his business. And that's his promise. We simply confess who he is. We are given to trust his promise. And that he will do his promise. And he does. Always has. And he always will. 
And then, of course, there's more from Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus. There's more giving. There's more resourcing from the text. What is it? Keys. Keys of the kingdom of heaven. You want to talk about power and authority in the church? You want to talk about mission in the church? There you have it. In what Jesus gives and what he promises with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Binding. Locking. That's what keys do, right? They lock a door. A key looses or unlocks. This is what the power of the church is all about that Jesus gives to his church to do on the earth. This confession witness to Jesus as the Christ of the, of the Son of the living God, who alone is the Savior of all sinners, is thus the divine word that the church speaks through the holy ministry and the holy and royal priesthood. The preaching of Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins does its work here on the earth. Jesus lived and he died for you. All your sin is forgiven in him. Heaven is yours for his sake. That word of absolution works then like a what? A key. And Jesus promises that through such speaking, namely the preaching and speaking of his gospel, that whatever you loose or unlock on the earth is loosed in heaven. And faith hears this and says what? Thanks. Gift given. Gift received. Amen. But of course, anyone who rejects this confession, this witness, this preaching of Christ for sinners and for their salvation, that person is bound or locked by it. Locked, held fast under the wrath and judgment of God. Because this is exactly what Jesus says in the text. Whatever you bind on earth, we're bound in heaven. You see, unbelief, the refusal to believe, the preaching of Christ crucified and risen for sinners... It will end how? Hellaciously. Now the Lord would lead us, for whom he died, to repentance and faith. And not just once in our lives, but every day. To always confess that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. To hunger for his absolving word, as well as his precious body and blood in the Holy Supper. And that others... Whether he or she is a member of your family, a friend, a co-worker, or maybe uh, even your enemy, would come to such a confession of Jesus through hearing the gospel of forgiveness for sin and every sinner. And that they too then would come and receive holy baptism and be gathered into the church, <laughs> the church that Jesus builds, you remember, and the church that not even gates of hell can destroy. That's Jesus' promise, and that's certain, and that is sure. In the name of Jesus, your brothers and sisters, amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. See the difference? Huge difference. Huge difference between preaching Christ and preaching yourself. Huge difference of preaching the text faithfully and exegeting out what it says as opposed to eisegeting it and making people feel good about themselves through your eisegesis and your mythology spinning. Kuhlman didn't do any mythology spinning tonight, did he? Yeah, and that's the difference between a faithful preacher of God's word and Christ and him crucified for our sins.
and somebody who's blowing smoke. Pastor Kuhlman was not blowing smoke. Jensen Franklin was. Yeah, and that smoke, by the way, has its origin in the lake of fire. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on the friend, one of the friendly yellow buttons and support this important radio outreach. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.